Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. This is Stephen. You've probably seen him in a film. He's performed in more than 130 as an actor for some of the world's most distinguished directors, including Barry Levinson, Roman Polanski, Pedro Almodovar, Steven Spielberg, Diana Kouris, Sidney Pollack, and Jean-Paul Rappenau. Or maybe you've heard his voice. He's an Emmy award-winning narrator of over 200 documentaries. He's a writer, a poet, an ordained Buddhist priest. He's been engaged in political and social causes since his early teens, and is a long-time passionate advocate for wildlife and wild nature. But that's not half of it, as you're about to find out. I spent an evening talking with Peter Coyote at home in his ranch in Sebastopol in California. Now, as you know, if you've been listening to this show, we're on a quest to find out what the counterculture was, or is, and whatever happened to it. We're collecting stories, oral testimonies, and hidden histories. So thanks to those who have been leaving reviews, writing and making suggestions. I've got to mention Ronnie Lambert again. He's a goldmine. Also Liz, Linda, and Reggie for their support this month. Come and join them. Join us. BureauofLostCulture.com And for this episode, I especially want to thank my friend Jenny Spires. Jenny connected me with Peter across the miles, across the decades. Thank you, Jenny. Really appreciated it. Many of these shows are about countercultural themes in these islands. But as we've said before, you can't separate the British counterculture from its American counterpart. And this is largely an American story, although we do start here in London, in Battersea. I've learned so much from all our guests, but I have to say, my time with Peter, possibly like my time with Alan Moore and Michael Moorcock, felt like receiving a kind of transmission deep from the heart of the underground. We talked about a lot of stuff, so much in fact that this is just the first episode of two. In this one, we hear about how Peter became Peter Coyote, about Cold War student activism, radical theatre groups and the diggers, the free family and the utopian activists of San Francisco in the heady days of the 60s. But also heroin addiction, the birth of the communes, the death of the hippies, mescaline and how the atom bomb created rock and roll. We also hear some of his poems. Look, let's just get on with it, all right? Hello, Peter. Hello, mate. How are you? I'm doing well, yourself? Doing okay, considering. Considering what? Considering that I'm in America <laughs> and I'm 81 years old. Well, you don't look it right. I just read a quote from you and it said this. I'd say 90% of my mail and phone calls are from people who want some kind of help or commitment for me to do something. And I read that and I thought, my God, I've just asked him to do something. The problem is mine for not learning how to say no. The yeah, problem is right. not yours for doing what you want to do. Well, I suppose so, yeah. But, you know, well, thanks very much for, for doing this. I do appreciate it. And also, thanks to Jenny Spires. Right. I haven't seen her probably since 1969 or 70 when I was in London to meet the Beatles. And you're going to read us a poem about that time. So right. the background story is that the Grateful Dead wanted to kind of show off the California scene to the Beatles and wanted to meet the Beatles. So they put together sort of a representative group of the diggers, which was my family, 
two Hells Angels and their motorcycles, one of whom was had been a digger for a long time, um, Ken Kesey and some of his crew, and we flew to London. And I had known Derek Taylor, who was the publicist of the Beatles, and he had been over in America, and he actually understood what the diggers were doing. And I'd met him because some people in Los Angeles were trying to hold a, a charity concert for the diggers, and they were going to charge admission. And so we went down there and said, you can't do that. This is bullshit. And Derek Taylor jumped up and said, if these guys say it's bullshit, it is. So when we got over there, we went to Apple and we were sort of a sort of an ominous looking group. I mean, if you take positive and negative, the positive side of the Americans was we're very improvisatory, we're very free, we're very outspoken. We have none of the none of the tasteful restraint or consideration of the British. On the on the negative side, we can also be a little brutal and over overbearing. I'm not saying anything. Yeah. So we got there and George came out and uh he didn't know what to make of this group, and he recommended a hotel nearby. So we rented a big flat in uh, between Battersea and Kensington Bridges, opposite of Funland, and we stayed for a month. And hipsters came in from all over Europe to talk to the diggers and find out what was going on. And the Hell's Angels brought back first British Hell's Angel, a great kid named Buttons, who came back and when he was leaving he says i was not ready for this mate <laughs> um and i met jenny while we were in london and we had this little affair and it was wonderful and she was really sweet so here's kind of both sides of the 60s this is called london run and there's a little forward that says having been flown to london by the grateful dead with Ken Kesey and company and two Hells Angels in 1969 to assess the Beatles' cultural hipness and introduce the San Francisco scene to Europe. A script croaker is a doctor that gives you phony prescriptions just for asking. 6 December, London. Gray, junky, pallor sky. 12 to feed and house. Apple office, first stop. Timid George, the skinny one, suggests a cheap hotel where they take anybody. Keezy gone for days. This morning's script croaker, his mad maiden aunt and psychotic kids scratching and washing invisible sores, rents us a flat. Room for eight plus maiden aunt and freak. 81 Prince of Wales mansion, sandwiched between Kensington and Battersea Bridges. Shabby fun land across the road, chained for winter. Moldy furs, McVitie's biscuits, Typhoo tea strainer brewed. Jack's, legal pharmaceutical heroin, more effective than the weak heater eating shillings. Speed freak litter of candy bars, squashed butts, soiled clothes scattered around the stately manse. The sallow, motherly clutter for our brood of feral West Coast birds. Stanley Mouse painting the tanks of the Hells Angels choppers parked in the chilled foyer. My little English Jenny Wren, her leather coat and urchin scarf, breast pale as talcum powder, 
brushes and ties up my hair, laughing, prodding me awake. My loneliness for California's damp green hills and fog. Wish I could fly her home. Patchouli-scented Saturday. Desk in a high London window painted shut behind me. Sweet William's eyes closed, dropping cigarette ashes on his clothes. Battersea, they call it. Battered orphans of the wars at home. Sea, the sound of oceans we've crossed in our fretful goings and comings, seeking a new world. Oh, man. We've sort of gone to the heart of it there, Peter. I mean, you came, you guys came to these shores as kind of ambassadors of the counterculture. And what's kind of interesting for me is that I'm trying to understand what the counterculture was, is possibly, right, or what happened to it. And of course, the counterculture here is so inextricably linked with the counterculture there. So this journey, this kind of odyssey, this meeting of minds, well, I mean, just tell me a bit more about why sure. you were doing it. You know, Let me back it up a little. So when I was about 10 years old, my family had a friend who was a disc jockey in the 1940s and 50s named Ralph Burton. And he had 10,078 records in his house. And I used to love these records. They were old blues records and boogie-woogie piano. And for my 10th birthday, my father gave me a tape recorder. And I spent days at Ralph Burton's taping songs out of these records. And I just picked people by their names, funny names. But three or four years later, when the folk music craze had started, I had Sleepy John Estes, I had Fred McDowell, I had Big Bill Brunzi, I had Lead Belly, I had uh, crippled Clarence Lofton, I had Pine Top Smith, I had reels and reels of tapes that were remarkable because of the authenticity of the voices and the lives that they explained. And Around that time, a lot of other people were listening too. There was an interest in folk music. It's kind of corny, but a lot of people got to it the same way. On the radio, there were guys like Paul Anka and Bobby Darren, smooth white boys, you know, slick, great. And here were these cracked voices heralding lives and difficulties that we could only imagine. So I went to London in 1962, and I spent a number of months there playing my guitar in the streets with two English lads called the Bennett Brothers. And we played around. We went to we went to um, we went to Brighton on bank holiday. We made 50 pounds apiece that weekend. This is 1962 money. That's good money. That's good money. And I met a fellow named Martin Carthy, a very famous British folk musician he picked me up in a bar one night and gave me a place to sleep and stay and um i heard all these guys like davy graham and Mm. bert janch and when i got to charing cross the record stores were full of records that you couldn't get in the united states all the blues records that i'd been listening to and collecting the brits were buying and appreciating in 1962 Okay, so that was my impression. I sat there living on black and tans and pork pies for two months. (laughs) That was about it. But I loved England. I just couldn't get over like 
the difference in education class for class, the difference in vocabulary class for class, I thought, Jesus Christ, we're getting the short end of the stick at home. So here's what the counterculture was. First of all, there has always been a counterculture historically through time. The poet Gary Snyder calls it uh, the underground river, and it surfaces from time to time. It surfaces in times of great social uh, upheaval and like um, the American transcendentalists, Emerson and Thoreau and these people, John Muir, the great um, uh, explorer of the Sierras. And when it surfaces, you get a kind of overflowing of women's values, priestesses, earth-loving, earth-worshipping, craftsmen, musicians, artists, all expressing, expressing the life force. And historically, men have cut their hair short when they offer their sexuality to the state, and they let it grow long when they retain it for themselves. So oh, we, were not, we were not the first. We were part of a long line, Paris in the 20s. And you can go back, the British Romantic movement, you know, those painters and doing these languorous women, you know. Like Rossetti. Dante Gabriel Rossetti. The first to kind of glimpse what was wrong in my lifetime were the Beats. People were coming home from World War II. There was as much PTSD as there is now. People were not conversant with it. And so there was drinking and violence going on in these homes. And American public culture was spinning a patina of surface perfect tranquility. Father knows best and the Nelson family, these happy, well-adjusted families. You know, in my house, my father was breaking the furniture and, and, and things were not as they were supposed to be. My people were Jews. Jews were not considered white people until right. mid-60s at least. So we couldn't go to the country club two blocks from our house when all my friends would go swimming. They'd say, let's go swimming. And I'd say, well, I can't go. they say, we'll see you tomorrow. So I started reading the Beats, who were the first adults who were like critical of the materialism and the greed and the imperialism and the avaricious nature and the loss of connection to self. From what I understand is that post-Second World War, America had won not just the war, but the cultural war for a while at least, right? It was, right. Kind, of, it was kind of peak America. And you used this phrase which really struck me, which was the choice for Americans was between being a, a consumer and an employee. That's what we felt when we were growing up. We felt those seemed to be the options. And even when I was a young lad of 14, I started uh, listening to this music. I started going to the Bohemian section of New York in Greenwich Village, and you'd hear people playing homemade music, you know, Appalachian songs and ballads and all sorts of stuff. And it all reflected a kind of inchoate hunger for something deep and true and, and real. So by the time... I had reached agency and my peers had reached agency somewhere around 17, 18, 19, or in, after college. We could see the racism. We could see the economic inequity. We could see that America was not making good on its promises. Hmm. 
And so we resolved to try to do something. Was that in your blood, though? Because you talked about, you know, your Jewish family, I think a secular Jewish family, right? But you also yes, talked right. about your, your father's violence and the fact of being othered, you know, by into being Jewish. You also came from quite a left-wing family. It seemed to me that quite early on for you, there was this, let's call it social conscience or an openness to the stuff which we're talking about now, the beat poetry, possibilities of doing things different way. Did that come from family or was that from somewhere else? It, it came from family originally, but in two ways, one of which was kind of startling. So when I was about two and a half or three, after the arrival of my sister, my baby sister, my mother had a crippling nervous breakdown. She had asked my father for a divorce. He had proved to be so difficult. And he said, sure, go ahead, but I'm keeping the kids. And you know that I have the power and the judges and everybody in my, in my pocket. And my mom fell apart, literally became an eggplant. So my aunt sent over this 17-year-old black girl that had been working for her that she was very close to from North Carolina, kind of an astounding person. And she came into the house and her job was just to look after the kids. They had maids. My dad was well-to-do. And the maid that was there prior was caught stealing. And so the household felt under this woman whose name then was Sue Howard. She was just powerful and good-humored and loud and swept up all the trouble in the house. And my sister and I just migrated to her as a source of safety. And so my kitchen was filled every day with Black people who were laughing and talking and listening to music and discussing the world and discussing white people. And because this woman and her boyfriend, later her husband, Ozzie Nelson, were like my love objects. I mean, I didn't know anything about race or anything, but mm. all this new information was flooding in. And I, I learned how to see the world from a black person's point of view. Huh. So that was a big piece of it. I still mm. hold to that. I still have relatives of this woman that consider me family in Vance County, North Carolina. I have a whole black family. And then my mother's people were communists and socialists and right. do-gooders. And they had been, um, my mother's cousin was the first man fired from the New York City school system for being a communist, who 28 years later sued the school system and won 28 years back pay. But I watched the McCarthy period and I watched right. them lying about my relatives, mm -hmm. saying these people were spies for Stalin and they were labor organizers and they were mm -hmm. union people and they were good hearted people. So really, I think I stopped saluting the flag when I was 12. Hmm. I was so indignant that my government itself would be lying about my family and Joseph McCarthy watching grownups broken and in tears in my room for their political beliefs, which were supposedly legal. It wasn't illegal to be a communist, but they could hound you out of your job. They could turn right. public opinion against you. So I was steeped in that between the injustices of black culture and the injustices to political dissidents. I was kind of set on a path. So when I was in college, I think late in 62, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we felt 
12 or 14 of us felt that we could really die before we got a chance to be adults. That we were, we were, this was crazy. And we organized a three-day fast in front of the White House. We thought it through pretty well. We raised money. We bought two old junker cars and we drove to Washington and we supported Kennedy's peace race, but we were calling for an end to the resumption of nuclear testing. And there were John Bircher right-wing guys eating fried chicken in front of us and trying to make fun of us. But Kennedy saw us. We made the front page of the New York Times. And Kennedy saw us and invited us in the White House. It's the first time in the history of the White House that protesters had ever been invited in. And he had been flying to Phoenix, but he had McGeorge Bundy, his security, national security advisor, meet us. And up until that point, I had always thought that we were bringing information from the field to our government, that they didn't know how people were feeling, you know, and we were going to give them the intelligence so that they could rule wisely. I was asked to be the spokesman for that little trip. So I'm sitting across from this guy and I'm looking at him and this guy could have been my father. He was rich. He was powerful. And I realized this guy was solving a problem for his president. He didn't give a shit about 12 college kids marching up and down in the street, that we were of no more concern to him than had we been standing on the dock waving goodbye to the Queen Mary. And I realized that if I was going to get this guy's attention, I was going to have to come back with an army. This guy was not listening. And walking around in the street with a sign was not going to do anything. So it was a real wake up to how the political system worked in America. So you had the, the, this kind of new understanding that you'd got through your new family. The beat poetry and stuff is having an aesthetic effect too. But it was the actual that the world is in danger. My generation could be completely eradicated. It was that that kind of gave you the fuel to do this? Because this is quite a thing to do, right? To cross America, to, to go to the White yeah. House and to protest. Was it that? Was, it the, was that the fuel? Yes, it was the fuel and the, the ships approaching each other and the standoff. And America was full of nuclear horror story films right. on the beach and all of these things. It was the great unspoken terror. And Bob Dylan asserts, and I agree with him, that it was the atom bomb that created rock and roll, that kids were not going to wait any longer. They were not going to wait to have sex. They were not going to wait to be good boys and girls and not have fun and not do what they wanted. And I think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, prior to that, it was Frank Sinatra and Perry Como and the smooth, the smooth boys. Right. So, so you, you guys went there. You, you, you came up against the kind of implacable wall of bureaucracy. And that it's like, okay, well, you've got to come back with an army. That's, I mean, how old are you at this time as well? I'm 21. So when we made the front page of the New York Times, we started writing colleges, every college in the United States. We mimeographed letters to them, and we managed to keep the protests going every week for a year. And then in February of 1963, there was a 25,000 student demonstration, which Tom Hayden, I don't know if you know who he was, he's married to Jane Fonda. He was a political organizer and activist. He called it the beginning of the student peace movement. 
So for me and many of my friends, we realized that we could germinate an idea, we could act it out strategically, and we could have a national effect. We talked about the kind of countercultural life that you are growing into. What about this other stream, the acting? And where did that come from? What was the roots of that? I was part of the black turtleneck camel cigarette crowd in college of poets. And we were reading the beat poets and we were all going to be writers. And as a matter of fact, in my circle, almost everyone became published Hmm. authors and writers. Right. One day, the drama teacher who was always half in the bag, a splendid Irishman named Ned Donahoe, sat down, kind of collapsed into our little corner and turned to me and said, I suppose it's never occurred to you that theater is an argument of great public moment danced before an audience. And I said, no. I actually, I, I never thought of it that way. He said, well, if you have any balls, you'll come and you'll audition for my theater company. Excellent. Yeah. So, fuck it, I did. And what he did, he said, listen, enough of this academic bullshit. The basketball coach doesn't use his second best team. And he pulled what he thought were the best actors in school. And I did four shows a year for four years and got to play roles that I would never do, uh, never done again. So when I came out of college and I went to graduate school, I joined another theater. I spent about a year working in that theater and mincing around in tights, no idea what I was doing. And we were renting our second theater, a little theater, to this company, the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which had, you know, blown up newspaper reviews and beautiful women in low-cut gowns and looked like so much fun. And within a week, I was working there and I was given all the authority I could handle. I was directing, I was acting, I was teaching. It was great fun. We were just looking for ways to be effective. So. We did these little Italian Commedia dell'arte shows like Punch and Judy for adults that we rewrote. There were 17th century Italian farces, and we rewrote them about greed or about nuclear issues or about capitalism. And we were sort of the darlings of the left. We performed in the public parks. We passed the hat for our living. And two guys showed up from New York, a guy named Emmett Grogan and his invisible sidekick named Billy Murcott. And Emmett Grogan was a kind of classic Irish rogue, handsome, fearless, dangerous, incredibly charismatic. And Billy Murcott was this quiet, self-effacing guy who had graphs all over his apartment, tracking capital and income and influences and things like this. And they came to us and they said, listen, you guys could do more. You guys own the stage. It's You're very improvisatory. It's great. But you know where the play goes. So if a drunk gets on the stage, you can take a diversion and dance with them and dance them off the edge of the stage and make the audience laugh. But you're still, you're owning the stage and you're divided from your audience. They said, suppose you used your skills as actors to create theatrical events that people did not know were theatrical events, where they were they were Im- embedded into an event. 
And we began thinking about this. So the first thing that we did, in, and this is how the Diggers was born. And the Diggers comes from 17th century England, Gerard Winstanley. This is a sidebar about the Diggers, the original English Diggers. In the wake of the English Civil War, a number of radical groups emerged onto the political landscape. The Diggers were one, was a group of agrarian communists led by Gerard Winstanley in the years 1649 and 1650. As a small trader, Winstanley had been ruined by the Civil War and had developed radical views on private property. He saw it as a source of social conflict and wrote The New Law of Righteousness, which has been described as a communist manifesto written in the dialect of the day. The diggers advocated the communal cultivation of common land to return the earth to its original purpose. They reached out to the rural poor, to cottages and landless labourers. Their strategy did not include violence or damage to the property of the rich, but their ambition was that by example, the rich would be persuaded to shed some of their wealth. Mm, nice try. One of Winstanley's main principles was that a just government must be run on impartial laws for the good of the working people. Hear, hear. It was after the word of God came to him in a trance telling him to publish it abroad that he started his digging campaign. He imagined that his venture would be an example to others and spread across the country. He dreamed that everybody would till the earth without an issue of ownership and the whole earth would become a common treasury for every man, a very noble ideal. Here's a verse from one of his songs. With spades and hoes and plows, stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and plows, stand up now. Your freedom to uphold, seeing cavaliers are bold, to kill you if they could, and rights from you to hold. Stand up now, diggers all. The number of diggers increased. They were called diggers because they dug waste and communal land and planted vegetables there. But they met with huge opposition from wealthy farmers and the rich to the point where their houses were burnt down, their tools were destroyed, their possessions were confiscated, they were beaten, some of them were sent to prison, and they were all fined heavily. The attacks and arrests continued through 1649 and local people were urged to refuse the diggers any help of lodging or food. They were denounced as royalist, atheist, libertines and polygamists. And although poor people did begin to dig on common land and some farmers helped with seed, the diggers sadly came to an end. Unlike the levellers who numbered in their thousands, the diggers never developed a mass following, probably due to the amount of harassment they encountered. Their impact, perhaps, was in the realm of the history of ideas, as an inspiration to others, as we found out by listening to Peter Coyote. We analyzed American culture to, to what we believed were its two roots, profit and private property. We thought those two things were the glue that held it together. Under that, I now know as a Buddhist was self-interest and the ego. But at that time, that's the way we analyzed it. During this time, San Francisco is swelling with runaways and kids for whom America was not working. Some, this thing happens in San Francisco 
was it or was that was the rumors the sort of fables and the myths already spreading out to young people around america is that what is that why it became this mecca well first of all young american kids were getting turned on to grass mm -hmm. timothy leary was writing about lsd and lsd was not illegal and people were experimenting with it and then a store opened on hate street run by the thalen brothers ron and jay thalen called the psychedelic shop right which was a collection of photographs of local musicians, books on psychedelics, books on spiritual alternatives. And it was like a spark in Tinder. Suddenly, Nasidika, there was a clothing store. And suddenly, there were all of these little hippie stores. Well, our problem with the hippie stores was that to the diggers, there were just 18 inches of counter. Your father had 18 inches of counter. He sold glasses and shoes, and you're selling saris and hash pipes. You're not questioning the efficacy of store or the implications of it. So as, as the newspaper began reporting on all of the strange happenings and the colorful costumes and the things happening in San Francisco, kids began coming, and the city was doing nothing. And the Haight-Ashbury merchants called the hate independent proprietors, the hipsters were calling the police to get these kids dragged out of their doorways. So the dentists could shop and they were running through like in buses, like we were orangutans. So we started spray painting the windows of the buses and the cameras of people. And finally we decided let's just show what we can do. So we decided to feed people and we sent, we went to the farmer's market uh, the Italian farmers wouldn't give us anything. So we sent our women with their babies and they gave us all the food that was ripe that day. Mm. And we took it back and we cooked it in big metal milk cans. And we advertised free food today, five o'clock, bring a bowl and a spoon. And what we did was we built a rectangle six feet by six feet and painted it yellow. And it was called the free frame of reference. And to get the food, people had to step across it to get the food. Mm. And on the other side, we'd give them a little square with a shoelace. And we invited them to hold it up to the world and look as if it was a free frame of reference, as if it was free. And we did everything anonymously because we figured mm. that if you were not getting famous mm. and you were not getting rich, you were probably being sincere. So from there, and that we're feeding 600 people a day. Amazing. How, how does that work? It worked because we went to the markets and the mm. farmers would give us stuff that they didn't sell that day. And we would cook it in various kitchens and we would take it out. And then, we, and the idea of free began to percolate. So then we formed uh, a free store. And the first one was just piles of garbage that no one wanted. And we eventually found a lovely storefront we hustled the money to rent it from people who were interested in helping us. And we had tools and clothes and the household appliances and everything you would need repaired and usable. And it looked just like a store, only everything was free. And the theater of it was the roles were free, R-O-L-E-S. So if someone came in and said, who's in charge here? We'd say, you are. And if they just stood there and looked gobsmacked and stupid. There was no sense blaming the pigs or the man or the system. You'd 
you'd been offered a gift and you dropped the ball. But if you said, oh my God, really? I'm in charge? Well, I hate the way these shirts are done. Let's do this. Let's change it. And we would do it. So after a while, we received a shipment of stolen draft card blanks. Uh, the draft card was an obligatory thing that American boys at 18 had to sign up for to register for the draft. And they were being sent to Vietnam and they were being chopped up and killed. So we received a number of draft card blanks and we received the codes, which told us how to fill them out so that if you were stopped and the kid was supposedly from Georgia, this two digit code for Georgia would be in the right box. And so then, like soldiers would come in in uniform, young kids who didn't want to go to Vietnam, and with a little judicious, you know, conversations, Billy from Omaha could leave his Charlie from from San Francisco, hang up his uniform in the in the old clothes rack, put on new clothes, and leave without. I mean, ID. I mean, I mean, in a way, this is not just sort of social action. This is quite. Well, it's very, very strong political action, right? I mean, I'm imagining that from certain perspectives in America, it would be regarded as treasonous action, possibly. Is that right? Probably. When you talk, it feels to me like it's incredibly vivid still in your mind. And I just wondered if you could describe this feeling, because one of the things which fascinates me about the time, you had this collective feeling that you could actually change the world that That's it was all right. pos it was all possible and i call it agency agency and when you talk now it's like it's still very vivid in your you're not reminiscing about your youth or something it sounds like it's still in there is that right yeah so we were changed by this experience huh. this feeling of being together having the power to change things was very palpable and we won some and we lost some. So it's safe to say we lost every political battle. We didn't end racism. We didn't end imperialism. We didn't end unregulated capitalism. We didn't end neoliberalism. But on the cultural front, we won everything. Because out of this germ came, either began or came to fulfillment, the women's movement, the environmental movement, the organic food movement, alternative spiritual practices, yoga, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen, uh, alternative medical practices, acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathy, herbal medicine. And people began doing this in their lives. And our, our intuition was that culture was always stronger than politics that Americans would never throw themselves on the barricades to be the lumpen proletariat. But if they were living a nice life, they might very well defend it. There were two things that were wrong, or there were two things we didn't understand. The most important one was that we were the problem we were trying to solve. I'll try to explain it as best I can. I don't know if you know that I'm a Zen Buddhist priest. I do. And so I spent 50 years studying Buddhism and I'm transmitted. I'm allowed to ordain my own priests. So in the 13th century, there was a, a Japanese Zen master named Fuketsu. And he gave a little talk 
And these talks were very like riddles. You, they just twist your mind around because they couldn't be explicated by logic. And so what he said was, if you pick up one speck of dust, the nation prospers. If you don't pick it up, nothing happens. Doing anything is picking up a speck of dust, creating this program, building a Zen center, world peace, you know, fighting hunger. It doesn't matter. Next to the immensity of the universe, it's a speck of dust. Hmm. Now, some people can look at the world and see the suffering and the disorder, and they're not impelled to do anything. And they don't. And nothing changes. But for those of us who are impelled to do something, we pick up the speck of dust. But the most important thing to realize is that you don't just pick up the goodness you imagine. When you pick up the speck of dust, you pick up the entire world. You pick up error. You pick up greed. You pick up evil. You pick up aversion. You pick up envy. You pick up all of this stuff. It's unavoidable because it's all an admixture. So that's like Blake's world in a grain of sand? Yeah. Rather than being too celebratory and just going straight ahead, protected by your idea of goodness, you have to be more like a fox. You have to go forward. You smell the air. Is this still workable? Is this still the right strategy? Then you move forward a little farther. We didn't know that. We hurt our bodies with hard drugs. If you're pursuing absolute freedom, we gave ourselves a superficial cover. There's no way they're going to accept heroin. There's no way they're going to accept speed. And right. if we're doing that, we can be sure that we're on our own terms. So once again, we're overlooking the debilitation of the body. We're overlooking debilitation of character and indulgence and stuff like that. So that was a big problem. So people say that Altamont ended the, the counterculture. It's bullshit. I mean, you could say that the rock and roll scene ended the counterculture because in the very beginning, the bands were just local guys in the neighborhood. And the diggers held all these parties in Golden Gate Park. We had free food. We invited people to come and we'd get a band to play. Well, when it became a merchandisable phenomenon, the record companies came through and they started handing out $100,000 advances. And there were suddenly two classes of people. There were the rock and roll stars and everybody who worked for them. Right. So, right. right? And so that was happening at the same time. That's as, as emblematic of the counterculture as we were. There was this thing, wasn't it? The death of the hippie, which was kind of declared, was it 1968, after the Summer of Love or something? I think you said that you thought that the counterculture extended as far as the Reagan era. And certainly when I talk to people like Alan Moore here, he would say a similar thing. He would say in, the, in Britain, the counterculture extended until the Margaret Yeah, the Margaret yeah you fashion. bet. Just to go back to you, there's one other piece of this jigsaw that I want to put in, which is you're not born Peter Coyote. You become Peter Coyote. And he started with a masculine experience, right? Um, from what I understand. Um, but it wasn't just that, was it? It happened over a period of time. So maybe you, if you can bear it, if you could just tell that I can. story I once can. more. Yeah. When I was in college, <clears throat> a bunch of us sent away to Moore's Orchid Farm in Texas, and we got a box of peyote about three feet long. 
and just these cactus. What are you going to do with them? We were college students. We went to the library. We started researching it. And all of a sudden, we discovered there was a peyote cult in Tama, Iowa, 25 miles away from our college. So I had already been to jail for being caught with uh, eight kilos of marijuana when I was 17. If I had been 18, I'd still be in Mexico. So we went out to the Indian reservation and I just kind of sniffed around and I found a guy and we made a deal. We gave him half the peyote and he showed us how to prepare it to eat it. So we went down to a friend's room uh, one night and we sat around and we ate a lot. Of, we ate eight to 10 buttons each of this stuff. It's like eating the moss at the bottom of a well. I mean, it's, it's tough. And nothing seemed to happen. And my friend Terry Bisson, who is a wonderful writer, uh, stood up, said, I'm going back to my room. And he stood up and he said, hey, my hands are dizzy. And as soon as he said that, we were all gone. We were high as kites. So we got we got up and Terry and I walked outside. And it was a star shot night. And I said to Terry, Hey, Terry, this is really weird, but I mean, I'm me, but there's, I, I'm, there's, I'm some kind of little wolf. I don't know what this is. It's weird. I got to check this out. And I went around and I sort of dog trotted the entire night, just loping through the, the farmland of Iowa. And in the morning, as I was starting to come down, I found myself in a cornfield and there were all of these little footprints in the ground. And I was so high, I didn't know if I made them or animals made them or or whatever. And I just, there it was, it was under the moon, the mud, the corn, the, I kind of came back to myself. Well, a couple of years later, um, kind of, I was living with a guy named Rolling Thunder, who was a Shoshone Paiute medicine man. And he was kind of, he had come out to the counterculture to seek out the diggers because he said he'd had a vision that the diggers were the reincarnation of Indians killed at little bighorn. And I thought it was bullshit, but I thought it was good bullshit. So I, I went to meet this guy and I wound up hanging around his house and fixing his toilet and his trucks and, you know, pulled his son out of a cult commune and had to fight my way out. And anyway, so one night, I told him about this story and he, he would let me roll his kanikanik, his Indian tobacco. We'd smoke. I told him this story. He said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, what do you mean? What am I going to do? He said, well, the universe opened its mind to you. He said, you can write it off as a hallucination. It's okay. You'll have a nice life. You'll just be a white man. It's okay. He said, or you could ponder its meaning and try to learn from it, and you might grow up to be a human being. Oh, okay. <laughs> Think about that. So I thought about it for three months, and I changed my name as the step of acknowledging that this happened. And the minute I did it, there was an unintended consequence, which was extraordinary, which was I had no idea who Peter Coyote was. And nobody else did either. So I was completely free of my personal history. And from that time forward, I would find out who I was, what a human being was, 
living in the moment in this new free identity. I think I was 27 when I changed my name, and I'm 81 now. So I've been Peter Coyote longer than I've been Peter Cohan, for sure. Do you know who Peter Coyote is now? Absolutely not. There's no way I can know, because there is no Peter Coyote without oxygen, without sunlight, without microbes in the soil to grow his food, without Amazing. pollinating insects. That's, uh, that's Buddhism. That's just truth of the universe. So no, I don't know who I am. I mean, I know who I am by what I do. For 50 years, I've tried to fix my intention to be kind and compassionate mm -hmm. and to understand that I have all of human nature within me. I'm not a good person. And that if I'm not paying attention, I can be jealous, envious, hateful, cruel, or anything else. So what mindfulness is about, mindfulness is about tracking your inner life to ensure that negative stuff doesn't get past your teeth and into your muscles. You know, giving somebody the finger is an instant away from pulling the trigger. We don't think about it. But in America now that everybody's armed, you have to think about it. That spiritual break, it was by accident, but it was incredibly beneficial. Do you, also do you also feel in some way that it was fated? Fate is a strange word because it implies predestination or something. But in terms of your, the way you'd grown up with the influences that you'd had and the people that you'd met, the people that you'd worked with, and the culture at the time, because we're not separate from that as well. Do you, did it feel like it was inevitable in some way? That No, it didn't feel inevitable. You know, you probably know this. When something comes up, if you don't see it, it doesn't matter. If you see it, then you can acknowledge it and you can decide, I'm going to keep this, I'm going to nurture this. So no, it didn't. And remember, I had another... 10 years of drug addiction and working out problems of my childhood and all mm. of this stuff. And it was, I would say the most beneficial thing to me was the kind of collapse of the counterculture. There was a lot of surplus in the United States that supported the counterculture and supported the diggers. We could go to the backs of supermarkets every day and get food that was put out for too ripe to sell. And we could turn it into food. And you could live in the cracks with very, very little money. When Ronald Reagan became governor, they began closing off all those loopholes. Um, there were murders in the hate, uh, drug wars that took place. Guys in white shirts and black suits began showing up. And, and things became harder and more mercenary. After about three years... We moved out of the city and we began building communes to create land bases and alternate economies. As part of that, we tried to make uh, relationships with the native people who lived there, who were the encyclopedias about hmm. what this continent was really like, what the plants and animals and, and everything was about. And so I spent a lot of time with native people. But eventually, kids came into the scene, and kids began to exert a kind of indelible, uh, irrefutable pressure. You mean people having children? Yeah, people having children. Yeah. So normally, the diggers' motto was, do your thing, meaning be authentic, do what you want. Well, that's sort of the way Americans understand freedom, and you can see how well that's working. 
So what happened is you couldn't have Wino Eddie playing the tom-toms at four in the morning when mothers mm. were getting up to nurse at five. So you had to start making rules. And then there were people that couldn't abide that who said, you're violating the spirit of the counterculture and freedom. And because we didn't own our land bases, because we were always squatting or renting or something like that, <clears throat> eventually the communes broke up. People had to earn a living. They had to earn a livelihood. They had to surrender to the reality of unregulated capitalism. But they didn't have to surrender their basic values and didn't. So even today, we have 108 people in something called the Free Family Union. And they chip in every month what they can. And we're supporting about 15 people. We're able to give them $200 a month each on top of basic social security. So it gives them a little grace. Um, so we had, to, we had to adjust. We couldn't be pure. So my dad had died in uh, 1971. He'd lost all his money. He had been a very rich man, and he died maybe $25 million below broke. My mom was bankrupted, knew nothing about it had to sell her homes and his books and all his lands and hounds. He owned thousands of acres of ranch land and farmland. Everything was sold. And so I had uh, a daughter by a woman who'd run away. So I was the single father of a daughter. I was uh, a heroin addict and uh, I had no money. And I had to face a come to Jesus moment. So I had been living on my farm in the east where my dad had died and my daughter was missing her mom and we were having to leave the farm because it was going to be sold for debt so i went back to california and dropped my daughter off at her mother's for a visit and i went out and i met a guy and we got high that night in his apartment and must have been very strong dope and when i woke up in the morning he was dead across the table. He had overdosed. And I thought, well, if that had been me, my daughter would go to an institution. She would have been taken care of by the state or by her truly crazy mother. So I just slipped out the door and I called a doctor friend. And the doctor gave me enough, it was called Dolaphine, but it was like Demerol or something, to get over the sickness. And I, uh, I interviewed about six psychiatrists until I found one I wanted to be like. And I had was dating a woman who was a Zen student. So I started to sit Zen. And it was very hard for me. I mean, it's very disciplined, very rigorous. And I was a wild man, had been living indulgently for 10 years. But little by little, the combination of being drug-free and the discipline of sitting Zazen and working on my stuff all came together and it stuck and it kind of healed me of a lot of affliction well listener we are gonna leave it there at that pivotal moment i mean that was pretty special right i felt i felt genuinely moved by it and just to hear peter reading his poems was pretty marvelous but also educated and inspired and informed london run 
the poem Peter read is from his collection Tongue of a Crow. I'll put a link to that and to other things in the show notes. Thanks to the Library of the Working Class for the information about the diggers. Thanks for being with us. And thanks as ever to Soho Radio, Adrian Esmeralda and Rachel doing the good work. We're going to return to the second half of our conversation about Peter's life, including recovering from heroin addiction, Zen Buddhism, becoming a Hollywood star, and much more of it all, including more poems next time. In the meantime, if you want to support us in any way, come to bureauoflostculture.com. Just sign up for our newsletter, that's all you have to do. And tune in next time for more tales from the underground. To finish, here's that band that sponsor us sometimes. The Real Tuesday World, with their track. Adios, amigos. See you next time.